welcome to the podcast by ATA Slavic Languages Division. This is Veronica Demichelis, and I'm recording this without my usual co-host, Ekaterina Howard. But I do have two amazing guests that I can't wait to introduce. They're experienced translators, interpreters, instructors, um, small business owners, and talented writers. They run a very popular blog called Translation Times, and together they wrote a book that every linguist must read, and which is, in fact, required reading at several translation programs around the world. The book is called The Entrepreneurial Linguist, The Business School Approach to Freelance Translation. And I am talking, of course, about Judy and Dagie Jenner. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so Hello. much for having us, Veronica. You know, that bio sounds like our mom or our dad wrote it. That <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hello from over here in Europe. Um, thank you for your super kind words and thanks for having us. Thank you. I am so excited that you could join me today. I know how busy you are. And there is so much more we can tell our listeners about you. Um, and I will include more detailed bios in our show notes. But for those of our listeners who are not very familiar with you, could you say a few words about yourselves and what you do and where you live? <laughs> sure. My, I'm Judy. I'm Judy Jenner. I'm the older twin, which is why I'm speaking first. <laughs> um, I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yes, there are interpreters and translators in Nevada, in Las Vegas, and I'm not a showgirl. Sometimes I get that question if I'm a showgirl. <laughs> I, tra I travel a lot for work, so sometimes people ask me if I'm a showgirl, which is pretty funny, especially if they're, <laughs> they're looking at me. You know? uh, so I, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just a hardworking uh, small business owner. Um, I, I'm an interpreter and a translator. I'm federally certified for the United States courts as a court interpreter for Spanish. And um, you know, our, maybe the most interesting thing about us is that we we were born in Austria, and we had the great privilege of growing up in Mexico City, which was amazing. And I've been here in the U.S. since I was a as a as a teenager, so like ten years ago. Not just kidding, a lot, <laughs> a lot longer than. <laughs> okay, that's it for me. <laughs> okay, I, I'm Dagmar or Daggy, as my friends call me. I'm the younger uh, twin by 10 minutes, um, and I run the European side of our uh, business, which is called Twin Translations. I'm based in the capital of Austria, which is Vienna, and yeah, I've been um, running uh, our business and my part of the business for about 20 years now. Um, my working languages are German, English, Spanish, and French, both in interpreting and the translating. I am also the president of the Austrian Interpreters and Translators Association. I have taught at the university here in Vienna, and I'm also an accredited interpreter at the institutions of the European Union. Thank you so much for these introductions. So um, the theme of our podcast this year is Business Matters. Um, so I thought we could start talking about your book first, The Entrepreneurial Linguist. Um, it was published in 2010. And um, well, the question is silly, but I have to ask, do you feel that the professional landscape has changed? Um, and are you willing, if you're willing to share information, how has your business changed since then? Um, so a super good question, Veronica. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it has changed a bit. Every, every business, every sector, every industry undergoes changes once in a while. And I think obviously machine translation wasn't much of a topic when we wrote this book in 2010. Actually, I remember when I was an in-house translator years ago, in 2003 or so, we would uh, always uh, have a good laugh on Friday afternoon with Babblefish and we'd 
translate things back and forth and garbage would come out and we'd you know uh, be proud of our jobs and think would never be obsolete because translation by machines is so bad and that has changed it's a lot lot better right now it's a it's a real issue in the industry and I think we need to think about how we fit in in the future machine translation is definitely here to stay and we're gonna have to coexist in some way or another so that's a big change that, that I've seen for sure one of them and another one perhaps is that I, I do think the business has gotten more competitive more it's more global it's been global since we've had the internet and people can compete from all over the world and so I, I do think it's gotten a little bit tougher to compete now than maybe 15 or even 10 years ago so those are just a few of the changes we could of course be talking about that till next year but I think that's a that's a, a good start what do you think Daggy? Yeah, well, I couldn't couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, when we wrote the book, neural machine translation was nowhere in sight. Um, Babelfish back then was just statistical machine translation with uh, which produced laughable results. So those times are are definitely over. Neural machine translation has has come to stay. It has changed uh, the game. And of course, the question is going to be, how are we going to deal with it? We as interpreters and translators, as linguists, um, as you were saying, there will be some kind of coexistence definitely between us and, and machines. I don't think it will be humans against machines, but humans uh, with machines ultimately. And yeah, of course, we as an industry are affected by the big global trends that affect basically most industries, like Judy was saying, globalization, digitalization, automation. And um, I do think that we will have to emphasize more the human touch, what we humans can do better than machines. For example, cultural sensitivity, knowing what's culturally adequate, um, being a, a linguistic consultants, being creative, um, Addressing biases in language, all those things are things that computers can't do. And they only work with what they have. So it's the garbage in and garbage out principle. Um, so humans come in where, uh, where, uh, where machines will, will fail. And we need to emphasize even more uh, what we are better at than machines, much more than we've done in the past. I mean, th those are things we've always been good at, but I think we've maybe not emphasized them enough. The, the, the human touch, our role as advisors, as consultants and all things, uh, language. And yes, neural machine translation will get better definitely, but I don't think it will reach the level of a really good human translation anytime soon, at least, at least that's uh, what some of the experts I've talked to have said. I, I totally agree, and just to finalize this really quickly, I think the best thing we can do as a profession is to learn about those changes, to not be afraid of them, and to, to, to be aware, right, to see what the changes are and how we fit in to to stick your he head in the proverbial sand is not usually a good a good way to run a business and to pretend that it's not happening, which I've heard, I've heard from several colleagues saying that we're just going to ignore neural machine translation. I don't think that's a good plan. 
And just on, on a note from our business, we haven't really seen that customers come to us and say, hey, we could hire a machine, but we're going to go with you instead. That hasn't happened <laughs> to us first, first of all yet. I mean, maybe it is happening to others, and it, it will at some point happen. There will be a segment of the market, I think, that is our, A, is already replaced by machine translation, and will will continue to be replaced unless you really differentiate yourself and you do great work that a machine can't do, as Dayu was saying. and. Just an interesting note, uh, a client hired uh, us last week to do research into one single word, uh, and there was like a three-page report, and clearly a machine couldn't do it, even though it was only one word, but it required a lot of research, a lot of cultural knowledge, and mm. the machine doesn't have that. So I, I, I was pretty pretty happy to see that, just one word, and it, yeah. it, and the machine couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so one last point from my side on, on this um, question is something I would really like to see is a more nuanced diff narrative on what dual machine translation can do. Because Microsoft and the likes always publish reports saying that human parody is here, that uh, machine translation is just as good as human translation. And it turns out that it's not exactly the case. The world machine translation can do some things, but as I mentioned, there are big limitations that still exist that would um, really invite all uh, translators out there to really share this view with their friends and family and to tell them what machine translation can do and what it cannot do. This is not just to protect our jobs, but it's about creating a more nuanced uh, narrative about about this issue. I think that would really help to, yeah, to get, to put a better perspective on, on this issue. Yeah, it's really important. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and um, to follow up on what you said about global competition and standing out, um, some of the most important points in your book are think as a business and think as a customer. Do you have any suggestions on finding ways to think like a customer, whether you're a small language service business or a solopreneur? Um, because I know many people struggle with imposter syndrome. So do you have any good tips there? Oh, imposter syndrome. You know, first off, let me say that everybody suffers from this at mm -hmm. one time or another. I have certainly suffered from it. We've both suffered from it. Sometimes you'll just feel that and it's okay. I think it's okay to say, this is the way I feel, and let me remind myself what my qualifications are, and mm -hmm. take it take a deep breath. Um, but you know, I've walked into interpreting situations, especially. I think the whole imposter syndrome is very, very um, noticeable, or as you feel it's more direct when you're in in a room and your work is very public, and it's also very ephemeral. But everybody's looking at you and listening to you. Maybe you're even on the stage and. I had that recently. I worked with a colleague who's been interpreting as long as I've been alive. So did I have a little bit of an imposter syndrome? Yeah, a little bit. I, but I turns out I held my own and it was good. But um, in terms of thinking of yourself as a customer, I think it's actually a relatively easy ex exercise. You just think of your think. What would you want if you were the person who's buying these language services? What are your expectations? And it's pretty simple because you're a customer every day you purchase things from people all the time you pay you purchase services you purchase products and you want good service you want top-notch products you want uh, the vendor to stick to the agreement to the deadline to whatever you have uh, written down whatever you've agreed on right so people usually get upset customers get upset if the vendor 
doesn't deliver what you've agreed upon. So I think it's a relatively easy exercise, right? If you, if I, let's say if I email my CPA because I have a tax question, I, I expect the response the same day here in the US, I think that's reasonable. In Europe, you have a little bit more leeway. So um, I just do what I expect from the vendors I work with. And that's usually a pretty good exercise to put yourself yeah. in their shoes, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I agree because there's nothing really um, specific, T and I specific uh, to, to this. It's just about being a customer. You're a customer and a client of products and services every day, and just think of what you expect from 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 the people you work work with. As Judy was saying, a good yeah. good service. Uh, um, the other person being uh, re uh, responsive and um, getting good, having good communication and uh, meeting deadlines. It's really pretty, pretty simple. Just um, meet and exceed your your own expectations that you would have towards people who provide services uh, to you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So, do you have plans to release a new edition of your book? And um, do you have any plans to include the work of interpreters, which I know you're an expert in as well? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm always so afraid of this question. <laughs> it's a very important question. I'm glad you asked it. But the, the short answer is we don't have any plans, and it's entirely my fault. This is Judy. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely Judy's fault. It is just a tremendous amount of work. It's an incredible labor of love, and we're so glad we wrote it. It's helped so many people. But in terms of how much work it is, I think it's hard to picture from the outside if you've never written a book just how much work this is. And I personally never seem to find the time to really fit it in. Uh, I admire the colleagues who are able to do new editions of their book, uh, such as the wonderful Corinne McKay. Um, uh, you know, Daggy has been trying to push me in that direction, but <laughs> she, she hasn't succeeded yet. But if we, if we, if we do, absolutely would include a chapter on interpreting. And there's so much we'd need to update. Um, some of it, the information is already um, not accurate anymore, especially the technology side. So there's. There is a lot that we could write about, and I do want to get to it at some point, but I'll be honest, I just don't know when that, when that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree. We both have a lot on our plates, and, um, and the, there's the added challenge that we live don't even live on the same continent, so there's a coordination issue if you were if you write a book, you know, like two people working on one book, of course, that's an added challenge. And we, while we do spend a lot of time together, up to a few months um, every year, we're usually busy with um, other things. So we haven't really gotten around to doing it. But as Judy was saying, it's clearly doable. Corinne McKay has done it, but she might just be better organized than we are. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, I do hope that the new edition will come out um, and maybe um, gentle peer pressure will help us. <laughs> if our listeners, I can feel it. <laughs> if our listeners um, are looking forward to the new edition, they maybe can contact you and, tell, and let you know as well. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so another question. Um, I have recently come across this issue myself, both through interaction with clients who don't necessarily always mean, you know, mean to mean to be mean, but sometimes they say things. And also some of my colleagues have mentioned it, but 
do you feel like gender bias is a thing in translation and interpreting? Um, and if you do, um, what can we do to fight this? Oh, this is a talk about gender and feminism and yeah. language is one of our favorite topics. But mm. unfortunately, of course, I think in every profession, whether we like it or not, there is some gender bias. That's just the reality of our world as we have it currently, and that's not good. I haven't really seen a specific one in translation and interpreting, um, and this is actually the first time we've gotten this super interesting question. Uh, I'm sure there is inherently some bias. Nobody's ever come out to me and said, I don't think you're competent because you're a woman. But uh, some things that I have noticed is that oftentimes you look at the boards of directors of of associations for TNI around the world, and oftentimes you have uh, proportionally a lot of men considering that this profession is female dominated, right? So somehow, whether that's good or bad, and there's very, obviously very competent men, I'm not saying men are competent, but if you look at the, at the gender makeup of our profession, then it really should be represented on boards of directors, and that's not always the case. And there's, a, of course, a variety of factors of why that happens. Maybe women don't run as often, maybe don't, they don't have the time, or maybe, they, maybe there's gender bias. Maybe uh, men get elected to these posts more often than women. I don't exactly know, but I think it's an interesting topic to think about. Yeah, well, I personally haven't experienced, had any bad gender-related experiences in TNDI. I'm, I'm sure there's cases where that has happened uh, before, and, and unfortunately our society um, still has some traces of gender bias that are apparently, apparently die hard. And um, in terms of what Judy was saying, uh, presidents and members of the board of TNI associations, yeah, that, uh, that's something I've, I've noticed too, that there's a disproportionate amount of men in those, uh, in those positions. Of course, they're all volunteer positions, but still, they're somehow prestigious uh, jobs, and I've often wondered why there are uh, many more men than you would expect in a female-dominated industry like like ours. Maybe men have the tendency to run for these jobs more often than, than women do. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe they feel that they need to be in those positions more than uh, women do. Um, maybe. But that said, I'm, I'm the proud president of an association um, that's been around for 65 years and we've never had a male president. Wow. Just, just for the record. That's <laughs> awesome. I, 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 did, I didn't know that. You've never <laughs> had a male never. president. Wow, that's really interesting. And mm -hmm. uh, just really quickly to finalize this, I something that I've noticed too is when you go to some top-notch conferences in the industry, whether they're client-facing or or freelancer focused, oftentimes there's panels and once in a while you'll get these panels that are constituted of all men. And that happens more mm -hmm. for conferences that are perhaps in localization, a little bit more client facing. And uh, there's even a term for that that I learned late, uh, recently. It's called manals, like male, <laughs> ma ma male panels. And, and then of course it, it, is, it is pretty, pretty funny in a, in a sad way, right, that that happens in a female-dominated industry. So mm -hmm. one of our colleagues, Alexander Drexel, who's an interpreter for the European Commission, he uh, started this initiative to try to get more women 
on panels specifically for our, our industry, which is a kind of a sad state of affairs that we need this in the first place, considering we're our predominantly female-dominated industry. But I just love it that forward-thinking feminists like Alexander Drexel said, "Hey, <laughs> we need to do something about this," <laughs> and great. I'm on the I'm on the list. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so am I. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, can we talk about marketing now? Um, I feel that many introverts in our profession dread uh, this task. And um, even though, you know, we like maybe calling ourselves uh, word nerds, it can be hard to step out of your comfort zone, whether it's inbound marketing, tooting your own horn, cold or warm emails or in-person networking events. So do you have any um, tips that you could share for introverts that are reluctant to do that? That's a really good point. There are so many folks in our industry who describe themselves as introverts, and I get it. It's hard to do this. First of all, take a deep breath, and it's it's okay to it to be hard. Running a business is hard. Marketing your services is difficult for everybody, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. But I think one of the big things to realize is that you have to believe it yourself. If you don't believe that you're worth it, that you can sell those services, it's going to be very hard to communicate that to somebody else. So you have to work a little bit on your self-esteem and believing it. Oftentimes I hear from clients, oh, I don't feel like I'm worth this and this much money. And I say, well, if you don't believe it, your clients are certainly not going to believe it. So just uh, work a little bit in your self-confidence and, and also ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen? You go to uh, some dreaded networking event and uh, maybe you end up standing around with a glass of wine that costs you 15 bucks and is not good and you don't talk to anybody and that's not fun. I get it. That's happened to me and it's no fun. But if that's the worst thing that happened to you that day or that week, that's really not that terrible. So I, I like when I don't feel like doing one of these tasks, I always ask myself, what's the worst possible outcome? And the worst possible outcome is usually that I'm kind of bored and I, I struggle to, uh, you know, to talk to people and that happens to everybody. So don't be afraid of failing or of not getting the outcome that you want in the short run. I think marketing and putting yourselves out there, those are long-term investments in your professional future and it's going to take some time. And trust me, going to networking events without knowing anybody isn't fun for anybody. You just have to get out of your comfort zone and do it. And you grow a business by taking some of these risks and by doing things you'd, you don't love doing. It's called work for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, not surprisingly, I agree with my twin on that one too. <laughs> so networking is hard, of course, of course it is. Nobody's born as an expert network. And even people who consider themselves to be like more like extroverts, like Jude and I, even for us sometimes it's, it's hard. You know, so there's days where I don't really feel like doing it. But if I've signed up, I will usually go. And then sometimes I will just set myself an achievable goal, like handing out three business cards. Of course, not randomly, but, you know, to actual people you've actually talked to. And after that, I give myself permission to go home, right? So mm -hmm. that's something you, you could do. So cut yourself some, some slack and don't be too, too strict um, on yourself and take it one step at a time. But uh, I think it's obviously essential that we put ourselves out there because you can be the world's greatest translator. If nobody knows about you, you won't get any jobs or it's not really a choice we have. We need to market our services. We need to network. 
and if you're if you don't like the idea of calling it networking or tooting your own horn well just call it something else call it meeting new people just going to fun events that you might go to anyway say if you're a feminist or a chess player well go to places or events where feminists and chess players will go and you will have something in common with those people and usually uh, one of the first things people talk about to each other is uh, their jobs and what they what they do for a living and if you're at a place where you have a common interest with people that will be a, a much easier start and as you were saying the, the worst that can happen well you um, drink an overpriced um, a glass of wine, which, by the way, is much cheaper here in Europe by the glass than it is in, in the U.S. And then you you go home, or you might just you might not even meet a new client or a potential client, but you might make a new friend or meet the love of your life or somebody who has a, a, a who shares your hobby or, or something. You know, meeting new people is always good. You never know what what comes out of it. So we're all social beings. We want to be with with people. I don't think yeah. it. I don't. I don't believe that even introverts want to be just by themselves all the time. It's good to be among people, and it can be fun, even if it's sometimes hard. So it's about being present, about being visible to others. About it's about putting your name and your face out there. And if really the thought of going to places terrifies you, well, you might want to start doing it online by sharing you know useful things and insightful comments on Twitter on posts on LinkedIn and whatnot but still people do prefer the personal touch the human touch I personally like following people and reading interesting stuff from interesting people online but I do like like meeting them in person and putting a, a face to that to the Twitter handle thank you I love these tips they're really practical and easy yeah. to implement um, and I like how you break it down like this and make it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost becoming very enthusiastic about it myself. <laughs> Maybe one, uh, one, uh, one last tip, our, yeah. fam our famous icebreaker question. Yeah. Whenever I feel like it's hard to, you know, get people, get a conversation started with people, which is much harder in Europe, I think, than it is in the U.S., um, so what I, I do is I walk up to people who are usually doing after at some uh, at events are standing around small uh, tables and having a glass of wine. So I will usually just walk up to anybody and introduce myself and um, tell them that I'm an interpreter and translator. And then I will ask them. I will I'll, I will tell them. Well, would you like to answer my price question? <laughs> and of course, people hear the word price, they're like all ears, right? So they're like, yeah, bring it on, right? And then you should ask them the million dollar question, which is, what's the difference between translating and interpreting? And of course, you'll get the funniest um, answers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not only hilarious, but it really gets the conversation started. And I hardly ever get the right answer, um, but some, once in a while I do. And I remember years ago, somebody got it right, and they said, "Okay, where's my price?" <laughs> and I didn't have anything, right? And that's when I actually did some research, and I actually had chocolates made customized for me and my and my company with my company logo on them 
and then I would show up at networking events with my little box full of customized chocolates and I was hugely popular at uh, networking mm -hmm. events while the weather that stock of chocolates lasted <laughs> so that's, that's like a, a, an advanced technique of course it's yeah. nothing you would do at the beginning of your career because it does cost money but I think it was uh, money very well spell spent and I, I need to have some more of those chocolates made. That's a great idea. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. I really appreciate your time and Thank all the you. advice that you shared. Of course, it's been our pleasure. What a fun uh, half hour this has been with you. Thanks for the great questions and um, thanks to all of you for listening and hopefully we'll get to meet soon in person, maybe at the ATA conference in Palm Springs. I just signed up. Can't wait. Yes, please, our listeners follow Judy and Doggy on social media, um, read their blog, read their book if you haven't yet and come and say hello to them at the ATA conference and maybe use some of these great um, networking tips that they just shared. <laughs> Sounds good. See you there. Lovely. See you in Palm Springs.